please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Gregory Asner. Okay. I am vid being videoed for YouTube tonight, which means that normally, well, do I have a volunteer to hold up a sign that says applause and laughter, stuff like that? <laughs> so work with me, okay? Please. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm honored to have you all here on a Wednesday night in the rainstorm of 2014. Uh, we have it up my way at Stanford as well. I have students who literally haven't seen rain since they started school, not this year, but since last year. So we, uh, we called a state of, an, of emergency in my lab. Um, but it's great to be here. Thanks for coming out. Um, I'm really pleased to have a chance to tell you about some of the science that we do at Carnegie, and especially in my lab, and how that fits into the larger uh, challenge that we are undertaking as a society in terms of nature, biodiversity, and how we sustain that while trying to develop our society as humans around it and within it. Um, the challenge, as I see it, is embodied in this graph. And I, this talk doesn't have a lot of graphs, like standard uh, scientific graphs. It's, it's mostly pictures and videos with a few items like this, just to set a clear scientific understanding of what I'm talking about. Some people view the world on the left side of this uh, progression as the world should, was, and, and could be a, a wonderful utopia of natural ecosystems. Others view the world on the far right side of the graph as, well, we're really destroying the environment and pretty much it's all about us. We have intensive agriculture, we have urban areas, and what's left of nature in the green here is diminished, and we have these protected areas that are kind of uh, afterthoughts maybe. Some people feel that way about the world. And I talk to a lot of people and I get that perspective. Our perspective in my lab and in my community of scientists is that this is the progression that we've undertaken. It's the, the way we've gone. And these are examples in these photos. And really the challenge now is finding a way to manage this process. You can go to any acre on Earth, any acre on land on Earth, and figure out where we are in this graphic. Some of those acres are still very natural, pristine, the kind of things that you picture in the Amazon basin, maybe. And a whole lot of the earth is, like you see on the far right, highly developed, like a lot of our California systems, okay? So really the challenge isn't about fighting one way or the other on this axis, but managing the process in a way that protects nature and, and takes care of human livelihoods the best we can. It's a practical and realistic and truthful uh, way to look at it. Well, we're not too good at doing that. We haven't done it very well as a society, and some of our indicators of that are uh, shown in these pictures. We've used our technology as humans to mostly dismantle the biosphere. If you think about it, that's true. We could use large-scale uh, technologies associated with agriculture. We could um, do ind use industries that pump so much CO2 into the atmosphere and cause so much change in the environment that we might have coral bleaching. So they might be direct effects or indirect effects, stuff like that. Another very negative view of it is the view that was put out not long ago, just in September, that in the last 40 years we have halved, we have cut the number of, of other wildlife or other species on the planet in half. This was a big report of a 
put together by a lot of major organizations and led in part by the World Wildlife Foundation. The truth is that, yeah, we haven't been doing it very well so far. And it's a challenge to my generation, all of us, and all of our children and, and those that'll come after. Another view of that is shown here. This is from the University of Maryland, and it's the first ever view, and it's a 2014 view of what's gone on in terms of changes in forests globally. And the, the redder the color, or more purple the color, the more the forest has been transformed just in the past decade. Just in the past decade. Okay, Amazon Basin, lots of change here. The chewing away of the Amazon from the outside, the, the periphery, Colombia, Ecuador, and so forth in. Even in the US and in, in Alaska and Canada, massive changes right beneath our, our noses. We all hear about Indonesia, of course, Africa. To me, we see this as the footprint of that graphic I started with, played out. Teddy Roosevelt, John Muir, folks like that were way ahead of their time when they thought that protected areas were going to be important, and they certainly are. They're not a solution, but they're a piece of our portfolio of how we propagate and preserve nature into the future, given the fact that we are transforming our planet. This, this graphic shows, it's a little tough to see, I bet, but if I flick between the two, maybe you can see it better. Losses of forest and the blues are the protected areas that are, at least on paper, officially protected. And you'll see that they're not the same places. So protection, protected areas tend to work, okay? At least relative to the unprotected areas. Areas that are in white are deserts and remote areas that are still haven't been fully uh, transformed or don't have forests. One of the side effects of that that many of us know about is CO2 emissions. Our processes from driving the car to feeding ourselves to transport systems to energy systems create enormous amounts of CO2 emissions. Another one is deforestation. A lot of the world is being deforested because of the need for resources in these forested areas. And this graph is very simple. This graph is very simple, showing who some of the biggest deforesting or deforesters are, mostly in Indonesia, Malaysia, and, and Brazil. But these other colors that are yellows and greens are rapidly on the rise, right behind the red ones. Another way to think about the Earth and how, fat, and how it's changing is the speed at which it's changing. And one of the challenges that I'm going to present tonight in the science that we're doing is dealing with this problem, which is... This is an expression of human footprint on the, on the planet. This is from the organization uh, Globia. And this is the United States, and there's Mexico, and there's the Caribbean. And this is Europe, Western Europe. There's France and so forth, and into Eastern Europe and Russia. This is Africa, and you see this. And what these are are internet traces. So instead of looking down the way I'm going to mostly show tonight, this is almost looking up, or putting it all together from the bottom up, as we say. And you get a sense that things are changing fast. There's a lot of information technology passing. There's a lot of decision-making going on. And those decisions are played out, in, in part, on the land. So in my science and my community's science, we're dealing with this kind of uh, nonlinear rate of change. So what do you do about it? 
Well, I believe strongly, and I go around talking a lot about this, that if we're going to have technologies that are going to help us dismantle the biosphere, why don't we build technologies and do things that are designed specifically to save nature while promoting human livelihoods? And I've got a few examples tonight. I might, I know I'll do three, I might do four depending on the time. And uh, just to give you a kind of a, a feeling for what I'm talking about, without going deep into the physics, the chemistry, and the biology, I'm happy to talk about that uh, in questions or later, but uh, for a Wednesday night, I think it's better to do a little storytelling. Story uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about is how do we manage biodiversity in protected areas? Think about a protected area. It's a subset of a larger natural ecosystem. Once you put a fence around it, you've already altered it. So you are signing up to manage it by putting a fence around it. You don't put a fence around it and walk away because the species in there aren't, are, are, are confined now. So we are automatically signing up to take care of that, that system. How do we manage forest carbon? Who here knows about carbon? Most people have heard about it at this point. Um, that's good. You know, I could ask that five years ago and nobody knew about it. So it's amazing. Uh, the word is out that carbon matters. Uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere definitely matters. We know that. So how do we keep it out of the atmosphere? And one way is in, to keep it in our forests, and I'll, I'll talk about that. Another, another one is how do we reduce our impacts via land use on ecosystems? Is that something we want to do? How would we do it using technology? I might touch on that. And then the really hard one, the wicked hard problem, is how do we manage the effects of a changing climate? One of the things that has really expanded and almost an explosion of technology in, what, in, in the area of geospatial science. Geospatial means uh, understanding the spatial distribution of whatever you're interested in on the land surface or in the oceans, however you want to think about it. It could be in the atmosphere as well. And using that information well enough to actually make uh, scientific inference and ultimately make decisions if that's where the science needs to be um, going in, in supporting decision-making and policy and so forth. This image is a standard map or image of uh, Earth, obviously, as viewed from the traditional line of NASA satellites. And you see here green forests, and you see the blue oceans, and you see the ice sheets, the Antarctic and the Arctic. You see the deserts. But you actually don't get a feeling for how many people are out there, right? You don't get a sense for what our role has been in creating this image, which is a 2014 image. It looks like no one's there. That's been one of the big challenges in doing science or geospatial science in a way that has real policy impact, because you can blind yourself or be myopic if you don't use the right technology. The Google Earth view of something like deforestation has been out for quite a while. This turned a lot of heads, I think. Here's a forest in, two th in, uh, pardon me, in 1975 in the Amazon, and here it is in 1992, and there's that famous fishbone pattern of deforestation. Okay, the knowledge out of that is there is deforestation. But is the knowledge actionable other than stop the deforestation, which isn't going to happen in a lot of places if there's also a need for resource extraction or for other interests to be operating in this region? On the other hand, Science that I grew up with uh, early on was kind of stuck with field observations and the, the myopia of, say, climbing a tree. There's a guy on a tree right there. Okay? 
it's so small scale that anything you learn at that scale can be extremely hard to scale up or to make a big uh, conclusion over, okay? So these are, these are the challenges in geospatial science. Some of the recurring effects of that, before I get to the solution, are listed here. Bias estimates of whatever you're working on. Uh, and these are effects of insufficient scale, meaning you're not operating at a big enough scale or the right scale for, uh, say, a, a management or a policy uh, action. Or you're doing it without enough detail. Like you're not, you're, you're not seeing the problem in enough detail at the right scale. And so we end up with bias estimates. We end up with inappropriate actions. And the worst one is we end up with inaction, these so-called unknown unknowns. Okay? So what we've been doing at Carnegie for now more, uh, a long time, I think it's about 15 years now, is trying to completely change that model. That model is the one that I entered the science with uh, in 1992 three or so, and uh, it has hampered our ability to move forward scientifically to support conservation, policy, management, those kinds of things that are relying on science, in the, in the, or they should be relying on science. So this is just a little graphic that shows, well, what kind of information do people need about the environment? And you can think of a lot of ways to break it down, but every list that I come across if you're a scientist, you can reduce it down to its ingredients, like baking a cake. What do you put in the cake? Well, you want to know about the biodiversity. That would be the species or the communities of species. You'd want to know about the habitat. Is it a tall forest? Is it a small shrubland? What is it like? The function is really critical nowadays. How much carbon and water are flowing through the system? How productive is the system? And then something that sounds really esoteric is what's the chemistry of the system, which ends up being the fundamental thing. And then we also want to know about the topography and the climate and all these so-called abiotic factors that kind of set up the environment for the biology to, to do its thing. But we don't have this, we don't have any way to look at most of those things from orbit today. We don't have satellites that do that. We don't have um, collaborating or uh, other organizations in other countries that do it either. They just don't exist. So where we are today is flying aircraft with very unique sensors and systems that are almost mind-bogglingly accurate and can provide information that you're not going to believe when I show you. This is my plane. Uh, actually, I should say it's Carnegie's plane. <laughs> It's, uh, I like to say it's my plane because I'm the PI, but uh, this is a very unique plane. It's a Dornier 228. It's an aircraft that uh, if you had seats in it, it might, depending on whether you were setting it up for first class or economy, you would have it uh, maybe 20, 25 seats in it. Okay, Bigger than a, a Twin Otter, but smaller than, uh, a lot smaller than, say, a small Airbus. And inside, we've gutted this thing into a laboratory, and in the back, if I can point it out here, there is a big hole in the plane with a unique sensor package that straddles that hole. And this is it. So the, this is, the tail of the plane is to the right of the screen and the cockpit is way to the left. There's a, there's a lab, there are supercomputing capability, and then there are these instruments that we've worked hard to uh, put together and perfect. One of the instruments, the white one in the middle, 
uses lasers. And what it does is we fire lasers out of the bottom of the plane in a, in a sweeping pattern up to about 500,000 laser shots per second, half a million laser shots per second as the plane's flying along, sweeping like you'd sweep your garage. And for every single one of those laser shots, 500,000 per second, there's the laser beam in a cartoon here. It interacts with the tree canopy like this. And it returns a signal that on the left side here shows the, the vertical profile of the tree and then the ground return. Okay? This is while we're flying along at about 60, 70 meters per second over the, over the land. You image it in 3D, just like you get an MRI on your knee. Hopefully it's not an MRI on your head, but maybe your knee you've had one. And uh, you end up being able to see that environment in 3D from any angle. This is a sectional view of a forest in the Amazon basin. Here's a bit of land uh, uh, showing the ground on the bottom. There's an emergent tree, there's a palm tree, and this is all the vegetation, all from this laser imaging approach. Once you do that, you can fly through the canopy. This is super high resolution light detection and ranging, or LIDAR. It has uh, been around for a while. We are, my community has advanced it to this level now, where you can actually be a monkey Pretend you're a monkey and think about, well, what's it like to be in that canopy or over in that one? Or be on a harpy eagle or whatever kind of animal you want to be. Think about it. Okay, that gives you some sense for that technology. I'm going to take you through these technologies and then we're going to go straight into some examples. These, that was this white one. These, the big gold sensor, as my students call it, and this small black sensor work together and they do something that's totally different. The field of spectroscopy has been around for a long time. It's been around uh, long enough to study uh, the heavens and it's been used in medicine and it's been used in the laboratory for a long time. Try to do spectroscopy with an aircraft flying in, in over the Earth's surface at a rapid speed and collect not only a 2D image of what's going on on the land surface like a camera would, but for every pixel now we, have, we are able to image 480 channels of light. And there's a spectrum right there in the bottom, and here's another one, another one, another one, which are examples of spectra, so to speak, taken out of these points on the land surface. So instead of a 2D image like your camera that you have in your iPhone or whatever you're carrying in your, in your wallet or your pocket, our system is able to measure 480 channels of light going from the, the ultraviolet to the visible, near-infrared, and shortwave infrared. There are aspects of that that have been around for a long time. It's about doing it at extremely high fidelity and with super high sensitivity. And that's called high-fidelity imaging spectroscopy. It's one of my only science graphs, I think. Is, uh, here's uh, just to give you a sense for what each of these pixels looks like. There's, for each pixel, there's this spectrum, like you see here. And these are spectra of different tree species. And you can see that they're different. So right away you can say, well, maybe this technology can measure the biodiversity of trees. And when you turn it and look at the spectrum part, then you can look through the, the wavelengths from the visible into the near-infrared and the short wave. And these bumps and wiggles are driven by variation in the chemical composition of the vegetation 
or the soils or whatever you're pointing this, this instrument at, okay? This part of the spectrum is mostly dominated by plant pigments like chlorophyll. It's what makes a plant look green. This is water and carbon, which will be important later. Nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus and calcium, and even defense chemicals that plants use, like phenols. If you're a, if you're a chemical nerd like me, you'll know what a phenol is, uh, at least the phenol group is. So the, these are spectra that tell us not only, for example, the different species, but also their chemical attributes. It would be like asking you to come up and sign your name, and then we use your signature to identify you later. It's really close to that now. Here's, what, here's how it looks when you fly over. Fly over this tropical forest canopy in Panama, in this case. It looks green, right? Well, my canopies are not green. They're like that. Where each of these different colors is a different chemical composition based on those spectra. Here's a tree crown that's a different chemical composition than, say, this one. And this turns out to be highly, highly correlated or relevant to mapping the biodiversity. It's a very diverse place, lots of different ones, right? To give you a little more of an impression of how that looks, this is a forest flown over in the Amazon, looks green. It's actually kaleidoscopically diverse in terms of its chemistry and its bio, bio, uh, biological composition. And here is a eucalyptus plantation in Hawaii. All the same color, all the same species, very different, this spectrometer works. That, I could not say that in 2005 or 6. I really couldn't even say it in 2011. It's really a breakthrough for us. And that's, that's been one of the big um, science arenas that has opened up. It's so accurate now that we can actually, as we're flying on board the plane in our lab inside the plane, we can see this kaleidoscope of species on the screen. And this is the inside the plane. There's my navigator. Okay, that's how advanced it's become in four years. Let's say three years to be more accurate. What happens is we put these instruments together. We don't use these technologies separately. We put them together in something called a data cube. So no more do we think of the world like Google Earth, like two or three, two, uh, three colors, you know, red, green, blue. Now we see, this is Stanford, here's the quad. Uh, here's the, uh, um, the oldest part of the campus, if you're familiar with it. And instead of just seeing the 2D, we have this deep, for each pixel in the image, this deep information gallery. And that gallery gives us different slices that we can pull information from. One way to look at it is here's a small airport with some vegetation. That's shown in just what you would see if you were in a hot air balloon, say, with your naked eye. But we can actually see, for example, the height of all the vegetation from the laser. Tall things are red and short things are blue. Tall things are red and short things are blue. Uh, this is from the spectrometer that shows us actually the rate of CO2 that's being taken up by the vegetation. Skipping many steps. These trees are really taking up a lot of CO2 and this grass is not. Okay, you see it in the coloring. Or you can just look at the Golden Gate Bridge with it and say, neat. It's, <laughs> it's colored. It took us about three seconds to fly over this thing and image it. So the technology has not made it into the mainstream, but you're seeing a lot of it for the first time here. Uh, for us, what we want to do is fly over a tropical forest that's so remote that no scientist has ever seen it, image it in 3D, get its biodiversity, and then look at it and decide, is this a new place to protect or not? Okay? And this is these are real data. 
These are real uh, trees, and these are show this is showing that this is a highly diverse forest that nobody knew about. It's in a very remote place. So what can we do with this that are real-world applications? And that is where we are in the science today is, great, you built some really cool toys. What do you do with it? Uh, this is the plane in the air. How do you do that? <laughs> you get at one of those guys with the goggles, you know? And, no, no. We have, uh, nowadays, it's a lot easier. You just put a GoPro uh, on the wing and take a photo of yourself. <laughs> People ask me, how do you do that? They forget the rest of the talk. They ask me about that. Okay. Um, one of the big questions we're trying to address, which is a practical one, and people actually, the only hate mail I get is about the question. We manage, how do we manage biodiversity on a planet of protected areas? People don't want to think that, we need, that, that it's just being reduced to protected areas, but if you go to Africa, that's what it is. These blue areas in southern Africa, here's South Africa, here's Namibia, Botswana, et cetera, and so forth, there's Madagascar. If it's in a blue, it's protected. If it's not, it's agriculture. I, I know this place. I know it real well. I bet some of you have been there, too. You can travel from Johannesburg over here somewhere all the way to, um, to Kruger, and you're just in ag systems. So there's the Kruger National Park. It's the size of Israel. It's two, two million hectares. Big place. These Botswana parks are massive, Angola, so forth. So, so we, are move, we have moved our, our environment, mostly even in Africa, to these situations of protected area or not, just like Teddy Roosevelt, just like John Muir, just like some of the great thinkers early on said would happen. Well, what do you do with the technology? Park managers in South Africa are super innovative. They're amazing people. They think about, OK, how do we manage the system for maximum biodiversity? inside the fence or the boundary of the Kruger National Park in this case. They use fire because fire is cost effective. We're talking about not a big budget. We're talking about not a big staff. So how do you manage the vegetation in a way that might produce uh, the, most, the, the most species? Think of it that way. And you say, well, how, what does fire have to do with that? Well, fire is the main tool for opening up the vegetation or letting it build up just like here in California, just like anywhere. And that has a big effect on, say, all the other species, all the way up to the apex herbivores and predators, like these guys. This, they all use trees and vegetation. Everybody's living in this habitat. Well, the park has been dealing with this for quite a while, and one of the things that has been an issue for them and for others is they need to work off tourism dollars. A practical issue is, if they're going to work off tourism dollars, what do tourists want? And how do you match that to what they can do as conservationists? Um, in this case, or in, in the case of, uh, of Kruger, they have some pretty stark examples of extremes of different experiments and tests that they've done. This is a 3D image taken by our system. I flew in, in the Kruger National Park that shows too much fire, and therefore way open with no trees, and then a fence, and then no fire, really dense tree cover. Now, is, is, which one is better? Which would you pick? Trees, a tree lover. How about, what if you're a lion? What would you pick? And they care about what lions want, <laughs> because tourists go to Kruger, unless you're a biologist like me, tourists go to Kruger to see lions. 
They go to Kruger to see elephants, rhino, buffalo, hippos, the big five, right? And that's where the dollars come from. I love the trees too. Trees are critical. They make the habitat for all of these species, but the park has to think about how to bring in tourists so that they can have funding to keep going. So we've studied, we're heavily involved in studying lions and elephants. I'm gonna tell you about lions now and how we use the technology to figure out what do lions want and then how do we advise the park managers how to use fire to create the habitats that lions use. What we do is we put GPS collars on lions. There's a collar there, you can hardly see it back there, but I'll show that in a minute. And we track these lions and we figure out what they prey on. And we map the system in 3D. Here's just a little sectional view to give you some sense. There's some savanna trees and shrubs. And we figure out exactly, here's a lion kill where the lion came out of the woods and took down an impala here what kind of habitats they use so that we can tell those managers what the, what the answer is. We made a huge discovery a few years ago, and this might be the last time I tell this one in public because we're making new discoveries today. But the male lions on the left and the female lions on the right, these are actual habitats in which they prefer to do their hunting, are radically different. Male lions hang out in, in confined densely vegetated parts of the savanna, and they use a, an ambush technique to take down mostly larger animals like kudu, bigger, bigger four-legged animals. Whereas the female lions, the ones that people see more often as tourists, because they're driving around looking out, the females are taking down animals out in the open savanna. They have fundamentally different hunting behaviors. Now, why does this matter? Well, if you want to make more lions, you need both, right? So how do you make it more probable that you'll have female lions come into contact with male lions? Make habitats that are conducive to both of their hunting behaviors and make them in a way that is highly diverse, open, closed, open, closed, using fire. And lo and behold, the number of lions will increase. Tourists are happy, money is flowing, lions are doing what they do, and everybody's happy. I, um, I really have expanded the Lion Project. This is one I gave this talk. Uh, I started giving this talk last year, last summer, and it led to some new discoveries yet and some more support. And today what we're doing is we're actually tracking lions in 3D and really understanding their habit, habitats, not only in the Kruger National Park, but in other parks. If I can do this without completely blowing up my talk, I thought I'd show you this for the first time. This is uh, Africa, right? <laughs> and we'll zoom into the oldest protected area on the African continent called Chishlui Infolozi Park. It's here. This is just for fun. This has no real meaning in the end of what I'm about to say. And here's the park. It's on the Indian Ocean. And these are collars that are on the animals right now. So you're seeing them today. We can zoom in. I think this might be Fluffy. Yes, they have names. There's Fluffy. Fluffy, see, Fluffy. And Fluffy's a male. Sorry, Fluffy, but a, Fluffy's a male. Fluffy's on this, on this, it's a relatively small stream in the, in the far side of Shishlui and Pelosi Park. And we can go up and uh, see where he, he is today, but more importantly, 
in terms of combining it with the 3D data and figuring out his kind of general preferences uh, as, a, as a savanna lion, uh, what we really do is we track him for years. And all these dots are every hour where Fluffy has been from, I think I loaded up June through now, through today. And he has quite a heterogeneous behavior. It's complex because he's a complex organism and he's out there doing mostly three things. You can think of what they would be. Um, <laughs> eating is one of them, how about that? Uh, so yeah, Fluffy is running around. And I could bring up each of these lions and they're having interactions and they are, this habitat is a savanna. I'm not showing it on this back of this simple Google map just for web purpose, but they are using their habitat. So you have to visualize that there's this habitat that I've mapped that I haven't been able to show you tonight yet. Make sense? Okay. Um, see if I can get back. Yes, okay. Here's the, here's the view of that park. Super heterogeneous, big place, amazing. You should go. You should pay some little bit of money to go see lions, I think, and other animals. This is one of my postdocs who, when we, we, we knock them out for about 45 minutes to put the, the collar on them, it's totally safe. But all the postdocs and students like to go and hug a lion during that process. Here's me stressed out trying to put a collar on it. But um, they're, they're amazing beasts, and they're, they're wonderful to study. And we thought we knew everything about lions, and I honestly, we don't know much about them. But the technology is allowing us to have a view of their world like never before. Going, I'm going to try to uh, do one more big example, and then a tiny little cameo example, and then wrap it up. Uh, a totally different topic, a totally different area that I mentioned earlier is this issue of carbon. We've got to keep it on land and out of the atmosphere. The science shows that. One of the places that I've worked very heavily for since about 1994 is the Amazon Basin. The Amazon is an amazing place. Here's that Globia view, internet traffic. Hasn't, it's starting, look, you can see the lines. They're getting in there. There's the Trans-Amazon Highway. There's the highway that links uh, northern Brazil to southern Brazil, and so forth. Lots of movement and human activity, of course, south of there. It's a special place. It still is. Don't, don't, let, it, don't let the news totally give you a negative feel. It's, it's in danger, but it's, a, it's, an amazing, it's still an amazing place. Six million square kilometers, probably half of all the species on Earth are just in this one basin. Uh, more than 100 billion tons of carbon, and that's what's at stake. If we emit that carbon through land use, it's going to get a lot worse. Major role in our climate system, et cetera, and so forth. You can read those. And thus, it is a policy target. Well, uh, the most negative view would be we're moving towards oil palm, cattle ranches, illegal gold mining, and the whole destabilization of the system. A utopian view would be we are not we will keep all human activity out and we'll have this utopia where you know, Avatar lives or something. <laughs> the practical scientist says, no, we're going to have a balance. We're going to work through this. It's going to develop. It is developing. Brazil's economy is booming. Peru is booming. Colombia is booming. Ecuador is booming. They're all booming. So what do we do? How do we bring money in to protect forests while they're also doing things that are destructive? Because that, that's currently where the money is. One is to pay people or to have programs that pay people to reduce deforestation. The international community has recognized this. From here, I go to Lima for yet another climate conference. It's now in Lima. I'll go tomorrow. 
And the discussion, although you hear mostly a lack of progress, where progress has occurred is on the issue of forests and climate change. And I'm more positive about it in general, um, that the international community sees the value in protecting forests to keep the carbon out of the atmosphere and in, onto the, on the land itself. They're known, forests are a very cost-effective way to do it because they grow, right? But to do this, we need a high-tech accounting system, and it needs to be cost-effective, and that's where we come in. One way we can be a, an accounting system about where the carbon is is to fly over the forest and image it in 3D, and there's that laser-based 3D image of a forest. We've spent years developing a, a relationship between that 3D stuff on this axis, this horizontal axis, and the actual mass of the forest, how heavy it is, called the biomass, or technical term is carbon density. That's this. And finding a relationship, skipping years and years of field work in my talk today just to tell you that we have solved this and it works. And you can get a map like this. This is, all of these maps, I don't, I don't know if all of them are, but in most of these maps, the, the heaviest trees are in red, the, the kind of middle weight trees are in uh, yellows and greens, and then blue is nothing. Okay, this is the interoceanic highway and you see that there's been deforestation along here and you see lots of carbon, lots of big trees in these areas away from the highway, just to give you a visual feel. Here's another highly used landscape for ran cattle ranching. The cattle ranching itself is not very friendly to carbon, otherwise you'd see reds and trees there, but out along the edges there's still forest. It's not just about people though, there's nat nature has done its job too. So you can fly over a very pristine forest that has nobody in it, or at least no land use in it, and see areas, pockets of super high carbon stocks right next to a forest that is not so big, not so heavy, okay? You start to see, oh wait, it's just not a green carpet like you see in Google Earth, that's, that's a lie. It's this enormously varied, varied landscape. In this case, if you, the laser can see the ground below the forest, and we found that, well, where there are these types of geologies, the forest is very heavy and big. Where there are these types of geologies, it is not as big. I won't go into the details, but that gives you a sense. These are new discoveries. These are 2014. Um, you can zoom out and see the entire Amazon main stem. Here's the forest in red. Wherever there's a river, you can imagine rivers have a lot of erosion. Trees don't get quite as big there, so they're shown up as whites and yellows here. It's natural. However, if you bring in, say, the city of Iquitos, look at that. Big blue splotch on the land and the, this highway that goes out to the town of Nauta, and you can see the human influence starting to chew away at the red carbon. Okay. Well, to make a long story as short as possible, we've used a method that takes a country like Peru, and I want to focus on Peru because I'm going to Lima tomorrow, and also Peru is probably the home of the most species per acre anywhere in the Amazon basin. So it's especially biodiverse there. And if you try to map 320 million acres of Peru, of Peru you could spend a lot of time in an airplane. So what we've done is simplifying the talk to one slide, we use the airplane to sample the country and we use satellites to augment that. What do we get from satellites? Basic information on the types of forests that are out there, 
the precipitation, the temperature, the terrain, and so forth. And we make this connection between what we sample with the airplane and what we can map with satellites. And lo and behold, we get a map. This is a graphic. I'm going to switch just to show, use a graphic to Panama. We did this for the country of Panama. And what you're seeing here is as we fly the airplane across the, the Isthmus of Panama, right here, you can actually see our tracks. This is real, what we're doing. This is in the order that we did it. The size of the dots is how much carbon we detected with the laser system on land. And then the model that uses the satellites is literally updating in real time. So as we fly, we're collecting the information from the aircraft data, we're combining it with the satellite data, and we're building the, the first high-resolution carbon map of Panama. This is 2013, early 20, no, uh, yeah, 2013, more or less. Very high carbon stocks along the Caribbean coast and over here, extreme deforestation here. There's the Panama Canal, see it? Yeah, we'll look at that in a sec. Actually, we'll look at it now. One of the things that this does, I, I know that's hard to absorb all of that right there, because I didn't expect it to because um, it's a whole other lecture on how you do that geospatial work, but you get the idea. There's an airplane and there are satellites and you combine the data. Once you do it, you get these maps that everybody can understand, including decision makers and leaders. And one of the ways they can best understand it is by taking a cruise of their country in carbon units. This is carbon for Peru and Panama. Red is the really high carbon stocks where the big forests are. Blue is up in the Andes where it's grassland, so it's low carbon stocks, naturally. We're going to fly in here. There's uh, the Amazon main stem I showed you earlier. There's Iquitos, if you've ever been there. Here's the booming town of Pucallpa, where oil palm from Indonesia has arrived. Deforestation there, loss, Ter rough place to be. However, you go to the southern Amazon, and as you go up into the mountains, up, 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 it, the, the carbon stock decreases naturally because it's cold at higher elevation. Trees don't grow as big. Here's a big swampland. Here's Panama again, and I'll show you the Panama Canal, and then we'll move on. And you can actually communicate the lay of the land in carbon units to people that have to make the decisions. That's the critical piece here that didn't exist. This is deforested land. Here's the Panama Canal, right through there. The Canal Authority, see these reds and yellows? Lots of forest around the canal. If you've ever been there, it's forested. They're preserving that forest because it provides protection to the watershed, to that multi-billion dollar industry to keep those ships moving through there. So given the right incentives, you will protect your forest. One of the things that you do with a carbon map that policymakers care about the most and the UN really cares about is, okay, you have this carbon map. Now, overlay on the carbon map where the logging concessions are, where oil, fossil oil exploration is occurring, what we call threats to the, to the carbon in the forest, or where protections to the carbon, like indigenous communities and protected areas like national parks. You don't have to see it all here, but this is the thing that the policymakers need, which is what's called a balance sheet. Most people know what a balance sheet is, just like your bank account. Threats protections and opportunities mapped out in high resolution. Don't have to worry about the numbers, but the point is we can say that in Peru, there's about two billion tons of carbon that's threatened. Two billion metric tons by these industries. However, the good news is it's not all, all bleak. There's, more, there's almost three billion that are protected. 
but there's 2.39 billion tons that are in nowhere land right now. It's like not in the bank. It's sitting out there on, this, on the street corner in front of the bank. And it could be put into protection or it could be thrown into the threats pile. And this is where actionable policy can occur. That's where the science, where the rubber meets the road. Well, people are excited about it. Here's the Peruvian Minister of Environment. He's leading the UN conference in Lima right now. He's on the plane. He's super excited. Yeah, it's the first balance sheet ever in the history of science at a high resolution for a country. And in New York a few weeks ago, you heard that uh, Norway decided to give $300 million to Peru to reduce this massive loss they're undergoing using technology, science, and better land planning. And this is the president of Peru, Umala, President Umala, making that commitment two days ago. You can't do any of that without the science. The science isn't the answer, but it is the fundamental underpinning piece of information that they need to make a decision. Last short story, very short. Sometimes science is also useful when it's high tech in um, opening eyes, opening eyes. And uh, I, I pose the, it as a question here. How can we use scientific data to accelerate action? Some people think that um, we're all about action, like um, protecting, you know, for lack of better terms, Greenpeace-style action. We're not really, but sometimes the science just speaks to the problem in a way that's very in, uh, inspiring and propels people. A good example is gold. Gold prices in 2000, in, even before the 2008 crash, were on the rise. With the 2008 recession, gold went through the roof. What happened? There was a gold rush, just like we had here in California, now in 2010. 2011, 2012. This is from those GoPros on the wings. Sometimes you don't need fancy gear to see the gold miners operating in the Amazon basin. This is lowland forest that is now being radically deforested. Why? The gold is in the soil below the forest. Massive amounts. This was on a major TV show uh, in Peru, kind of the NBC of Peru. Well, that's just cameras on the wings. We had the minister on board. All the jaws were open saying, oh my gosh, it's worse than we thought. And it's even worse than they thought because our, our fancy gold spectrometer can fly over those gashes in the forest and see suspended sediment laden with mercury. That's red. Radical amounts of mercury. So much mercury that we think it might be flowing all the way into Brazil and maybe we're starting to wonder if it could be even flowing into the Atlantic. That's how much mercury I'm talking about. We don't know. That's speculation, but there's a lot of mercury in the zones of gold mining. If you go as a tourist to Madre de Dios, it's one of the most biodiverse places on Earth. It's where Manu National Park is. You will go down on a boat like this, and you'll see forest, and you'll say, ah, it's amazing. And it is amazing. But what's hidden behind this veneer of forest is illegal gold mining. This is us going down the river. This is our 3D imaging system with the spectrometer and the lasers turned on. We can digitally deforest the region, peel away the vegetation, and see the illegal gold miners here set back off the river. They're there. And these little holes are the sizes of football stadiums. They're huge areas. Sometimes they're tiny, tiny they get as large as football, football fields and stadiums. So the technology promotes or propels action. And in this case, it did. This little plane, this little Carnegie plane, generated all of this. And if you really look, 
illegal mining, look, they even put our picture in there. Three billion dollars, they thought, were going out illegally. But in the end of, the, of this progression, this is all, all of this happened in about three months after we did it, there's discussion about bringing fair trade to gold mining. Kind of like the blood diamonds issue, okay? It's that the science produces information that's actionable, and then there is hope. I'm going to do this. Go to my last two slides. What we're doing today to wrap up um, is that I think we're making discoveries that people uh, are surprised about. I didn't get time tonight to talk about biodiversity in, in a lot of detail. It's where I spend a lot of my time, about the chemistry of the earth. I spend a lot of my time in that, too. Talk about these topics because they're pretty reachable on a Wednesday night. Um, if you're interested in the kinds of discoveries we're making, uh, the best way to do that is to take a look at our website. It's CAO, Carnegie Airborne Observatory, Stanford.edu. And the second thing that we're doing that I think might be just as important nowadays is trying to make science be useful to management and decision making while we're actually making discoveries. And the third is I talked in the beginning about orbit, going to orbit. We haven't had these technologies make it into orbit yet. I have good news that the laser technology through a dear colleague of mine at the University of Maryland is going to go to the International Space Station in 2020. So we will finally scale up what we've learned here on the laser technology for the biomass and the 3D stuff. For the biodiversity and the species, we're still maybe a long way away from going into orbit, but we're working our way towards that so that we can spread this science globally. None of this happens without these people. Uh, of course, my flight crew, uh, our computing crew, our instrument crew, our sponsors, and so forth. And I, with that, I want to especially thank the very few sponsors who have taken great risk on us to make this happen. Thank you.